0: Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Glad that you could join with us as we celebrate in response to this good news of what God has done for us in Christ. If we've not yet met, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. Um, If you would, being new or visiting, just make a point to say hello on your way out. I'll be at the back door. Would love to get to know you and see if there's any way that we can. Uh, continue to serve you here in the ministry of this church. Uh, We're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. So would you turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be considering the portion of Scripture, verses 32 through 52. Mark chapter 10, 32 through 52. Let's hear God's word together. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be condemned over to the chief, delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, One at your right hand, and one on your left, in your glory. Just, uh, excuse me, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him along the way. Do you join in praying with me as we consider God's word? Our God and Father, we look to you this morning, coming before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator, It's on the basis of his ministry and service that we approach your throne seeking grace to help in our time of need. And we are needy people. But you are a wonderfully generous and good heavenly Father able to meet all our needs to satisfy our longings to strengthen us for daily life. Father, we need your word because your word is the word of life. And so we ask that you would help us that by Your Word, You would cause, by Your your Spirit, You would cause Your Word to us this morning to be fruitful, to be effectual. We ask, Father, that You would help us in our approach, that we would give attention to it with all diligence. We pray that You would help us by Your Spirit that we might receive it with faith and love to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. Why are you here? Was the question that my high school basketball coach asked every single one of us as we lined up along the baseline. A valid question because we all knew some were there for different reasons. Some were there for the love of the game, as it was. Some were there to prove something. Others to make a name for themselves because why you showed up exposed your true purpose. And an infinitely greater question of much more significance and importance is, why did Christ come? Why was he here? And it's no wonder then, given the importance of that question, that each of the Gospels gives significant force and significant emphasis to answer and reveal that very question. And Mark has been weaving this great purpose throughout his account within this Gospel. It begins with this trumpet blast in chapter 1, verse 1, that simply says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where good news begins. And Mark will go on in his gospel to weave together not only the announcement of that, but for the very purpose, and announcing the purpose as to why Christ came. Mark 8, verse 31, says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. There's a second revelation in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, where it says, He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And as we come to chapter 10, we come to the third and really the most detailed revelation of Christ's impending death and resurrection. Meaning, if we miss this, then we miss everything that the New Testament teaches about Christ. If we miss this, we miss the great purpose of Christ's coming, and by result, we make him to be so much less than that the Bible proclaims him to be. If we miss this, we miss the sweetness of the gospel promise, and the gospel ends up being bland and perhaps even boring for you. But to see Christ and to see why He came magnifies for us the love of God towards sinners and the glory of God in our redemption. And even more, what we're going to get to this morning, when we keep the great aim of Christ and his coming squarely before us, we then are shaped by it. We, as his followers, are are formed by it into the type of citizens that actually reflect the king that he is. Here's what we're getting at this morning. When we see Christ as he is, then we are enabled to see ourselves as we are. We can rightly say, When we see who we are following, we understand how we are to follow. Now, the irony in all of this is that the blind man had better perception than Jesus' disciples. Let's consider how this unravels. We're told, first of all, of those that were following, most certainly, but they were following in fear. We see this back in verse 32, where Mark says that as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. There is a definite sense of solemnity that Mark gives to us in this picture as they ascend up towards Jerusalem. Jesus is walking before them, leading his disciples, heading into the city. Now, we're not given the details here of, of you know, the pace that he walked. We're not given the details as to his facial expression or the look in his eye as he ascended the mountain and they followed behind, but only, we're told, as they walked, Jesus went ahead and his followers were filled with a mixture of amazement and fear. Now, what is interesting is that we are told this before Christ then gives explicit instructions as to what awaits him in Jerusalem. Don't read this and think the amazement and fear is because of what Jesus says, this is what awaits me. Before he even gets to that conversation, Mark says, these men followed the Son of Man in amazement and fear. What awakens this amazement and this terror is not the road to Jerusalem, nor their understanding of even really what awaits them, but it is Jesus himself. The one in whose midst they find themselves. The one behind whom they're following. In Mark, he records the details of this, this sense of wonder and this fear so that we might, as the reader, lay hold of some sense of the gravity of this moment. Just what is happening here? The Son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity walks before them. The brightness of the Father's glory, the one in whom is of one substance and equal with the Father, leads them. The one who made the world, the one who upholds and governs all things, the one whom has taken upon himself man's nature, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, this is the one in whom they follow. We get a bit of sense of understanding in this, in Isaiah's prophecies. He writes of the suffering servant and the one who would come to restore God's people. And one of the few descriptions that were given that he says there through Isaiah, The Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In all of this and who Christ is and his leading before them, it gives to us this grave sense that would provoke within the disciples amazement and fear. What we're saying is that every image that we could imagine of the brave general marching off to war or the sea captain steering into the storm or the first responder running towards harm's way, does not do justice to the reality of what we are reading right here. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the one tempted and tried, anointed by God to be the rescuer of God's people, leads his followers up to Jerusalem. And to be in the presence of that One, capital O, provokes these men to this sense of amazement and fear. And the astonishment and even really we could say the confusion would be compounded when Jesus speaks to them on the way of what awaits them. This is his third explanation, his third passion prediction, and the most detailed explanation of what awaits the Son of Man. Each of these three passion predictions in Mark clarify with such precision as to why Jesus came. Each of the three emphasized he will be killed. But the details of this eventual death, they sort of cascade in an unfolding manner as he gets closer to Jerusalem. In 831, he said he would suffer and be rejected. In 931, he said he would be betrayed and more detail. And here in 1033, he would be delivered up, condemned to death, to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and then killed. Each of the three predictions end though with the same assurance declaring that after three days he will rise again. And Mark writes so that we would understand that the good news of the gospel centers upon who Jesus is and what he has done. And the inclusion of these three passion predictions are really the, the reinforced structure, then, that compels us to see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that is the event that makes the good news actually possible. Yes, read your Gospels and see Jesus heals the sick. Yes, Jesus, he restores sight to the blind. Yes, Jesus, he even calls people to follow after him. And yes... Jesus calls people to put their faith in him, but unless we see why he came, we're unable to see the ultimate purpose of all of those healings, teachings, calls to obedience, and miracles. In one sense, what Jesus is doing here is pulling the 12 aside again and laying out in such detail what awaits them becoming this great crescendo of all of his teaching, all of the parables, all of the healings. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've experienced guys' eyes on me. And he looks at him and he says, you've been with me essentially for some time now. And let me say again with great detail what all of this is for. My death. My resurrection. And friend, if you're here this morning in you hear the gospel read, perhaps you've been reading them by yourself, you must read it with this brilliant illumination shining upon it. If you want to understand the gospels, if you want to understand the meaning of scripture, you must read it with this spotlight shining upon the page of your Bible. The reason why Christ has come is because of death and resurrection. What are the gospels about? Good news, hands down. If you hear nothing other than that this morning, know what this gospel proclaims is good news. And what is this good news concerning? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Read your Bible in such a way that you see him as he's revealed. If you want to understand the scriptures, you must understand who Jesus is. And as then as you turn from your Bible and you examine your own life, you must use the same illumination. You must use the same revelation. Who is this one? And what is your life to be about? How are you to make sense of difficult circumstances? How are you think well about unexplained luxuries that have suddenly fallen into your lap? How do you make sense of just the ordinary nature of daily living? By the same revelation. Consider your life in light of Jesus Christ. His death. Well, why did he die? His burial. Why is that significant? His resurrection. What does that mean? Because it's only by that reality that you will make sense of your reality. And Mark is so clear and so careful to put that before us. There were some who were following him, but in fear. But the story goes on that there's... Also some following, but following what we could say for glory. Following in fear, but secondly, following for glory. What's ironic is that within each of these three passion predictions within Mark's gospel, we also then read of three examples of the disciples trying to establish their own position, as it were, and really trying to lay hold of their own prestige. The request here of James and John is perhaps the most blatant example of self-centered ambition compared to Jesus' self-sacrificial ambition that's laid alongside of it. And really, it's from this request of James and John that we are given the most explicit understanding of how the kingdom works and really the mindset of its citizens, All of this that Jesus is going to say is built upon and flows from this this great example here is the Son of Man being the servant. These men are following for glory. And notice the concern as they follow. Verse 35, it says there that after Jesus gave this explanation, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. A bit of context here. It's helpful to know that in Jewish custom, the highest place of honor was at the center, followed by those to the immediate right and the immediate left. We see this every now and then. Think of if you went to a wedding recently, the head table there at the reception, typically you have the bride and the groom at the center, and then immediately to their right and to their left, the honored maid of honor, the best man, that There's some sense of the centrality is the place of honor, and then those closest to that center are the next tier of honor. It would seem that James and John wanted to be ready when this kingdom comes into being, and so they are asking for seating arrangements. Now, admittedly, there is a, a measure of faith in their request. The kingdom's not yet established there's a dozen or so men ascending the hill of Jerusalem in the dusty streets and really nobody is paying much attention. To their credit, they're talking about a kingdom in glory. We'll give them points for that. But despite all of that, the lowliness of Jesus, this humble band of followers, the sons of thunder as they were known, are so sure that this kingdom would come that they're already taking notes and saying, let's talk about where we're going to sit in this glory. Great faith, poor motive. So what does Jesus do? He begins to question their knowledge, to discern, do you understand really what you're even asking? And Jesus points that they're clearly viewing the kingdom in terms of contemporary glory. Or would we would say, you're using your worldview to try and understand my kingdom, and you're wrong. Jesus would reign, they thought, just kind of like the Romans would reign, but probably with a bit more goodness and righteousness, just kind of switch that out, and that's what it means. I'll sit on the right, he'll sit on the left, let's go. Now, despite all the teaching that Jesus had been given, they still did not realize that this kingdom would come much different than the Roman kingdom or any other kingdom that conquers other kingdoms. This kingdom would come and be expressed in lowliness, and sacrifice, through loss, by rejection. And so if that is true, who in their right mind would ask to sit at a place of honor? Who signs up to sit at the center when what that means is that you are more closely related to sacrifice, loss, rejection, and dishonor? They clearly missed the point. And better yet, who could ask for a place of honor in such a kingdom? Because to ask such a question about honor, it exposes that you don't really understand the kingdom. It's impossible to seek greatness for yourself if the kingdom ethic revolves around humility and sacrifice. Hence Jesus' statement, boys, you don't know what you're asking. And so Jesus, he asked them a question to qualify just what they think they're after. And the question has to do with a cup and a baptism in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And they said, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. To speak of the cup and of baptism would have been a very familiar image in Jewish teaching. In fact, these disciples would have grown up in a synagogue hearing the teaching of the law and the prophets, the prophets most specifically, and understood that when they heard cup, It had something to do with suffering. So when Jesus asked them, are you able to drink this cup, to be baptized with this baptism, Jesus is asking, are you able to handle the degree of hardship and affliction that comes with being associated with me? Do you understand the sort of immersion, baptism, into rejection and into suffering that you are asking for? And James and John, they answer in a way that shows they clearly do not understand the full weight of what it is they're asking for, or the degree that Christ himself must suffer, nor the implications of being associated with them. Now, James would become the first disciple to be martyred. Herod would have him beheaded eventually. And John would be sentenced to banishment in the island of Patmos. So in a way, they would share the cup of Christ's sufferings. They would taste in some small part the the bitterness of suffering and the affliction that Christ would drink. And so what Christ says to them is, yes, the cup of suffering belongs to them. But the designation of honor, that belongs to the Father. This is a good reminder for all of us who seek to follow after Christ. This is a good reminder for all of us who bear the name Christian or disciple of Christ as it rolls into the very understanding of who it is that we're following and how we're following. This is a good reminder for all of us as we find the pulse of ambition running through our own veins. Is there not something within all of us that looks for the seat of honor? We chuckle at these men because we know what it is to ask or to want whether it be a literal title within your work or vocation, or just the recognition of your friends or peers to what you are doing, this pursuit of glory, this selfish ambition, it is inherent to us all. Because we are wired by God's design to chase glory. I hope you know that. We are wired for glory. We are wired to pursue glory. Unfortunately, one of the effects of sin upon the human condition is that instead of pursuing the glory of God, by which we were created to do, we instead pursue our own glory. We pursue this great desire to make a name for ourselves. So how often, friends, we need to hear that the designation of honor it belongs to God, to his sovereignty, not our own striving and not our own scheming. Do you know Psalm 75, 4? I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with the haughty neck. Why? For not from the east, nor from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Essentially, your great desire to be known, to be lifted up, it's really not in your hands, nor any other person that you could leverage to make that happen. That alone belongs to God. He is the one who lifts up, and he is the one who brings down. John the Baptist and his disciples were working through much of the same struggle. If you remember in John's Gospel in chapter 3, the disciples of John, they come to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? That's Jesus. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Do you remember John's answer? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. John understood his place. I'm the forerunner. I prepare the way. If everybody is running after Jesus, boys, recognize no one can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. This is God's doing. So church, let us therefore accept our humbling and our exaltation. Let us receive our suffering and our prospering as from God. Let us give up at the same time our avoidance of sacrifice for Christ's name as well as our attempts to promote ourselves for His name. There are these that are following, and that is their great concern. But there are these that are following that also receive this great correction. Look back at verse 42. Jesus called them and said to them, Again, what is Jesus doing? He's redefining their definition of greatness by showing that the true mark of greatness is not power, but service. And so he gives them a lesson by contrast. And the hinge that all of this swings upon is verse 43. Because on this side of the door, he says, Look, Gentiles exalt themselves and love to lord others over others. And then he swings the other way in verse 43. Essentially saying disciples, though, get lower in order to serve others. Notice the contrast of language. Lording over is this top-down authoritarian influence, but slaves work from the bottom up. The picture here is that disciples lead, but not by heavy-handedness, but by open-handedness. Disciples lead not by clutching and grasping, but by with open hands getting lower and giving. Relinquish your rights. Stop frenetically grasping on to what you think you deserve, is essentially the implication here. Jesus says that the way the disciple stands, really in strong contrast to, to the way of the world, is that the mark of this disciple is not enforcement by exaltation, but servitude by gentle love. That's how you will know the great distinction between those citizens of this world and citizens of my kingdom. Now, do you notice how the gospel inverts the way that we relate to everything? Friend, if you haven't noticed this, then I would encourage you to press in further to see the way that this good news actually informs our living. The gospel inverts so much of what is intuitive to us in our natural state. Instead of me being at the center of the universe, the gospel instead says, no, Christ is actually at the center of the universe. And by implication, then, our relationship to all creation changes as well. If Christ is to whom for all things exist, and by him all things exist, that means the way I relate to all things must also change. Specifically, we could think of our relationships. The gospel informs these relationships and somehow inverts them because when I look at my friendships and my family, those within my church, I don't think, hey, you exist for me, but I exist for you. The same in regards to money. It doesn't exist to serve me, but it exists to honor God and serve others. It's inverted as well. Well, how about power? Because some of you may have a high degree of influence within your work, within your home, amongst your peers. What does a Christian do with power? What does a Christian do with influence? Well, any influence that I have, it's not to promote me, and to oppress you, but it's to protect you. What about our work or our vocation? Well, I'm not working towards self-preservation, but I'm working towards stewardship. Again, in all of these examples, I am no longer the center of the universe, and therefore the way I relate to these things says I'm not lording it over, but I'm being a servant underneath. The reason why the servant is the most prominent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of the servant is to give. And giving, friends, is the essence of God. This is the seed of the kingdom because it is the very expression of the king. In order to make his point about servanthood crystal clear, Jesus then points to himself to make the ultimate example. And he asked the question, why has the Son of Man come? What even did the Son of Man do? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word even is really important, isn't it? Because it clues us in linguistically that there is a great contrast going to be made. That even if this one, then how much more more so me? Even the son of man, how much more so me? Jesus, the one who has all authority, Jesus, the one who deserves all the honor, does what? He does not come into creation demanding to be served which he would have every right to do. He breaks into our world and he comes as a servant. Not only just giving of his resources, giving himself, giving his own life. What we see in Jesus here is that he's a willing sacrifice. And what this means and why this is so important is that in saying that, He's not only defining for us what real servanthood is, but he reveals the absolute depth of his love for his people. You see, the depth of love is known through the sacrifice required. This is a strong biblical principle. Think about it. If you love a person who's well put together, a delight to be around, has no major needs, never a drain on your emotions, never a drain on your time or your finances, you come away from every encounter with this person just so encouraged. How assured is that person of your love for them? To what degree do you actually love them? But if you are then, in contrast, to love someone who has needs, who is most certainly in trouble, who is persecuted, who is emotionally or physically costly to you, that is a drain upon you, that love for them is seen in your sacrifice. And the only way that love is truly demonstrated and it's most visibly felt Is through substitutionary sacrifice. I step into your space and give to you what you do not have at my personal cost. That is love. And therefore, if we bear the name of Christ, but we ourselves are not servant minded like this, we must question how much do we really know of this Christ and of his kingdom? Let's be more specific. How can we be great lovers of our Bible, biblical theology, but refuse to lift a finger when it comes to clearing the table or cleaning a dish? How can we speak often of our love for Jesus, but loving our neighbors not on our calendar nor in our vocabulary? What would, friends, a marriage actually look like that was shaped by this understanding of sacrificial love? How would that change your home? Children, those of you who have brothers or sisters, cousins or neighbors, how would it change the way that you relate to your peers, to your siblings, with this understanding of sacrifice? Parents, as you turn towards your children and you begin to realize, I'm not going to lord over them, but I'm going to serve them. Does that sound blasphemous to you? I would encourage you to read again what Christ is teaching concerning his own servitude towards his people. Jesus says that the purpose to which he came was to be the purchase price to give his life in exchange for our freedom. He's come to serve, not only humbly teaching people, healing the sick, but ultimately, he says, the Son of Man has come to be a ransom, to be the purchase price, to bring freedom to those in bondage, to sinners. This is why in Revelation we hear of this great song that breaks out when they sang this new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. This is the essence of of the kingdom of God because it is the essence of the king. And therefore, it will be the mark of his people. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become our ransom so that through his substitutionary death upon the cross, we are free. Friend, what we're saying is that the king dies because of his people in their place and for his people. The cause of his death and the reason for his death is our sin. And the worth of Christ and his grace then is most clearly seen when we consider his determined purpose to ransom the people of God. There are those following in fear. There are those following for glory, but we're given one more illustration. We're given and told of one who's actually following in faith. Look back at verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now it's helpful to know that this name, the Son of David, it's actually a title. It has its roots in the Old Testament, specifically a promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17. And if you read through that passage later this afternoon, you will find that what God promised is that a son would come from David's line ensuring that this kingdom would be everlasting. Meaning, this kingdom would never be overthrown. This kingdom would never be bankrupt. It would never be uh, able to be destroyed. It would continue forever. And this promise to David was really a reminder here of God's Faithfulness, saying, look, human kings are going to fail. But he would send the king of kings from David's line who would not abandon his people, would not fail his people, but he would remain faithful to them forever. So, if you're a Jewish boy, Jewish girl, going to synagogue weekly, you would have grown up with this expectation that someday, perhaps this year, the promised son of David would come. You're looking for this. You're anticipating it. Because someday, from the lineage of David, God himself would place his promised deliverer upon the throne and that he would rule in righteousness. The son of David. It's a title of tremendous hope. And so is Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for his final week of earthly ministry, we are meant to see that he does so in fulfillment of God's promise as he is the provision of salvation for God's people. We hear it in the cry of this man. Despite him being scolded and shushed by the crowds, he persists in saying, Son of David, mercy. Now, to cry out for mercy, it's pretty humbling any of you've had older brothers you may remember some particular moments of humiliation to ask for mercy in a very tangible sense is very humbling because it's a full admission not only of your own need but your inability to meet that need it's the lowest form of weakness i need mercy in essence this man's crying out look at me look at my condition And please have compassion on me. Don't just pass by. How does Christ respond? Well, verse 49. He said to him, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him and went on the way. Does this question sound familiar that he asked him? What do you want me to do for you? It's certainly a thought-provoking question, especially when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, is asking it. What do you want me to do for you? But it has all the more significance when we remember it isn't the first time that Jesus has actually asked this question, spoken these very words. Verse 35 of this same chapter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Same question. Two different contexts. James and John, we want to be seen. Blind man, I want to see. James and John, we want majesty. Blind man, I want mercy. And ironically... This blind man was one of the few who could actually see who Jesus really is and patterns his life accordingly. It was not faith in his own faith. It wasn't the purity of his faith, but the object of his faith. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. Have mercy on me. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the God-sent Deliverer, I am just a blind beggar, but you are the Messiah. On the basis of who you are, have mercy. And what does he hear? Take heart. He calls for you. Take heart, church. He calls for you. He calls out this morning, just as he did, to blind Bartimaeus, and he delights in mercy. Is this the Jesus that you actually know? Not the one that you talk about knowing, but the one that you actually know. Perhaps you've begun to believe mistakenly that God only accepts the put together. God only accepts the faithful. That God only accepts the strong, the upright. Have you not read, Jesus delights in mercy he sees the sin and he sees the weakness of his people. He's moved with pity. He delights to draw near and he gives mercy. Friends, you and I ought to be emboldened by this blind man and his cry for mercy. Because as we consider this portion of scripture, the risen Christ asks the same exact question this morning that he puts before his followers. What do you want me to do for you? Do you realize that? As you sit here this morning, the risen Christ asks the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And how you answer that question, it exposes much of how you see yourself and who you see Christ to be. Whatever you just answered in that fill in the blank exposes what you see of yourself and what you see of Christ. And The gospel of Mark helps us, placing before us the inescapable reality of our own spiritual blindness, our own hardness of heart, our spiritual thirst, our propensity towards self-consumed greatness, our inability to rescue ourselves. And Mark layers these realities through the healings, through teachings, through warnings that must be explicitly seen then through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection that awaits him. Because the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, to pay the cost of redemption by giving his life as a ransom. What we're saying, friends, is that whether we feel it or not, our greatest need this morning is to have the glaring offense of our sin and the shameful guilt of our iniquity dealt with. And the wonderfully good news of Mark's gospel is that Christ has come to do exactly that, to take away sins. The son of David has come. God's promised rescuer has come, and he delights in mercy. The son of man has come, and he is the servant who pours out his life unto death. The very thing that you actually need, Christ extends. How good is that to hear? The word of the Lord this morning is that it tells us to go to Christ because of this very fact. He is full of mercy. Perhaps you were already humming it, thinking of these very words. Come weary, heavy laden, lost, ruined by the fall. If you tarry, Till you're better, you're never going to come at all. But a blind man teaches us by saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is who I am. This is who you are. And I'm going to follow you on the basis of that. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning rejoicing to hear of such good news that you delight in mercy. The very thing that we most desperately need, the very thing that we are unable to resolve for ourselves father you are faithful to do so in the giving of your son father we thank you for this great news that it's extended to us in Mark's gospel to hear that there is hope in the midst of sin that there is mercy for transgression that the son of God the righteous one ransom for his people Lord, we ask and we pray that you would continue to ground us in this wonderfully good news, to know the joy of sins forgiven, to know the sort of ambition that comes from wanting and seeking to be sacrificial in all of our service. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would continue to cause the gospel to ring so loudly that we're not only clear on the wonderful announcement, but that by your spirit it begins to penetrate the very core of who we are and continues to transform The very way that we see you and see ourselves in relation to one another. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the table that's set here before us, it is the Lord's table. Because this table announces that God's people belong to him by faith. That we're made partakers of his body. We're made partakers of his blood. And that because of that, with all the benefits for our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ are contained in what these simple elements proclaim to us. Broken body and spilled blood. Believe it or not, coming to this table as God's people is the means that nourishes us and strengthens us as we hear again of mercy for sinners. It's not a massive meal. You're not going to go away bloated and stuffed by the simple elements of bread and cup. But it is a massive meal in the implications of what it proclaims. That's why we come by faith as it is a visible display of what's just been proclaimed to us in the word that we've heard. Christ for sin. A ransom for sinners. This table then, church, causes us to grow in grace as we hear again of our acceptance before Him. Accepted on the basis of what? Mercy. On the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice. The Son of David. The Son of God. The Son of Man. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are dust. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever, because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Because that is true, fulfilled in Christ, the people of God come to the Lord's table with great assurance and great rejoicing, humbled, repentant, and in faith receiving what God himself has prepared. That's why we say this meal is a bond and a pledge of our communion, our are joining together with the Lord and with one another as God's people. And so along with all of our members here, if you are visiting here today and you're a member of another church in good standing that preaches the same good news, and you've been baptized upon that profession of faith in Christ, friend, we would invite you to eat and to drink with us. If that's not true of you, or if you're unclear as to what it means to follow Christ, or if you've actually ever done that, We'd ask you to pass the elements as they come to you. Just pass them to the next person. And please do not eat or drink. But instead, consider this wonderful promise that you've heard this morning. That he invites you to come. He calls to you. And what he calls to you with is mercy. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus as the member, a member of one of his church, please ask myself or one of the other pastors after service. We'd love to speak with you. You can remain seated where you're at. We'll pass the bread and the cup to you. And as we anticipate eating and drinking together, let's prepare ourselves by singing the hymn that's going to be found on page 11 of our bulletin, reminding us of this tremendous fountain that's filled with blood. Let's come to the table.